0: The National Constitution Center inspires active citizenship as the only place in these polarized times where people across America and around the world can come together to learn about, debate, and celebrate the greatest vision of human freedom in history, the U.S. Constitution. Please support us by becoming a member and learn more at constitutioncenter.org. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss one of the most hotly contested constitutional questions of the week, namely the president's power to enact a nuclear deal with Iran On July 14th, foreign ministers from the United States, Iran, Russia, China, the UK, France, and Germany reached an international accord about Iran's nuclear program. Uh, In Washington, where Congress has two months to review the deal, it has been criticized by some uh, and has been a source of controversy since the accord was reached. Our goal in this conversation today is to both explain what the accord is and then explore whether or not the president has the constitutional authority to enact it uh, without explicit congressional support. Joining me to discuss these fascinating constitutional questions are two of the nation's leading experts on international and constitutional law. David Rivkin is a partner at Baker Hostetler. He is also a member of the firm's litigation international and environmental teams and co-leader of the firm's national appellate practice. Julian Ku is the Morris A. Dean Distinguished Professor of Constitutional Law and Faculty Director of International Programs at the Hostra University School of Law. His research interests include international law and its relationship to constitutional law. Gentlemen, let's jump right into it. David, can you describe the background leading up to the President's deal with Iran and Congress's response to the deal?
1: Yes. Um, the background is that uh, the administration, together with the other four permanent members of the Security Council, which you mentioned that during the introduction, plus Germany, has been negotiating with Iran for quite a long time uh, in an effort to um, obtain a good agreement that would effectively preclude Iran from. Well, it depends on, on on whether you stick with the original goals or goals as they change during the uh, negotiations. But the original goal was to ensure that Iran does not retain capability uh, to become a nuclear armed state. Um, dismantling. Running entirely, running nuclear infrastructure, preventing, in particular, Iran from engaging in enrichment-related activities, um, getting rid of all enriched uranium, and have ironclad verification measures that ensure that to be the case. That is not the deal that they, uh, we ultimately got. But I frankly don't want to spend too much time talking about the policy merits here because they don't have much to do with the constitutionality of a deal. Um, and, the, uh, very importantly, the um, administration done it in, uh, in a way that completely excluded Congress. Uh, in the past, for example, you had routinely congressional observers during all the major arms control negotiations. You had uh, get to congressional committees apprised of what was going on. That is not what happened here. Uh, I should say, by the way, that this is, uh, there was an, an interim agreement that was reached some months ago that was signed recently as uh, sort of a final agreement. Uh, and as far as congressional reaction is concerned, uh, Congress passed something called Corker Menendez or perhaps Corker that establishes, and it's very important to understand, a process whereby Congress has an opportunity to divest um, the President or whatever authority he already has under the existing sanctions legislation to um, to suspend um, the operation of those statutes and, and lift sanctions. That's the only issue that's before Congress. Um, they have a 60-day review process. Um, my expectation, I think, administration expectation, is that Congress would vote. To preclude the president from exercising this authority, a president would veto it, and there are not enough votes to override the veto. But again, to underscore for your listeners, this is not, repeat, not uh, about Congress approving the deal as a whole. Unlike, for example, trade legislation like NAFTA or you know WTO agreement, this is really only about blocking the president's power, which is already limited by the existing statutory language to lift sanctions. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, Julian, uh, David mentioned a 60-day review process. That comes from the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act of 2015. Tell us what that law is. It was approved by Congress in May 2015, and what are its effects on the president's power to enter into this deal with Iran?
2: Yeah, so it's kind of an unusual legal situation. So um, as you mentioned quite recently, um, Congress... Uh, almost unanimously, uh, enacted a statute uh, which uh, was specifically designed to deal with its role in the the review of the Iran deal, Iran agreement. And this law um, set a variety of deadlines. It's a little bit complicated, but essentially what it does is that it um, prevents President Obama from implementing, uh, as David mentioned, Part of his uh, agreement with Iran, which is to lift sanctions um, imposed by the United States on Iran, it essentially puts a, uh, uh, a, a limit—a 60-day or 30-day, but in this case, 60-day limit—on the ability of the president to lift those sanctions until Congress gets a chance to review um, the uh, the, agree- the Iran agreement. Which is um, and so once the agreement was announced on July 14th, the clock started ticking. Congress gets sixty days um, to either to as David mentioned to uh, vote on the uh, on whether they want to block President Obama from lifting sanctions on on Iran uh, or whether they could, they could actually do nothing also they could just sit and say nothing <laughs> um, or they could um, like often Congress does, they might vote but it might be filibustered and so no actual legislation goes to President Obama. But if they do vote and they say uh, get past the filibuster, they could send a bill to under the Iran Review Act, they're allowed to send a, a resolution to President Obama which would um, prevent him from lifting sanctions on Iran, essentially a disapproval of the Iran deal as a whole, but specifically uh, withdrawing his authority uh, to lift sanctions on Iran. Um, what's unusual about it, of course, is that because it's a new law, um, President Obama can veto that law. So effectively what the Re- Review Act does is that it requires... Um, if Congress wants to stop the United States from lifting sanctions on Iran, which is a very important part of the Iran deal, then um, it must essentially acquire a veto-proof majority in both houses um, to block President Obama from lifting the sanctions on Iran. So that's the mechanism that was created. Um, Now, what's unusual about the law is that it's quite unusual for law to be enacted in response to a particular, a specific agreement. Um, In the trade context, it's usually general trade authority. Um, This is how we'll review trade agreements. Um, In this case, it's just about the agreement with Iran. It's a very specific uh, statutory mechanism. Um, And it was concluded quite recently. And it's a product of a lot of negotiations between um, the Republicans and Democrats um, and the administration. And what ended up happening was something that essentially everyone agreed to, (laughs) that this is the mechanism they want. The president liked it, I suppose, because he could block it um and only veto-proof majority could overcome his decision. The Democrats liked it because it was a mechanism for them for Congress to get involved in reviewing at least part of the Iran deal. And the Republicans liked it because they wanted the best they could do to try to participate in the review of the Iran agreement. So that was what's created. So now we're in the middle of that sixty days right now. Um, and Congress is doing they're having hearings, they're debating it uh, in the press and um, within 60 days of July 14th, which I think is sometime, I guess, in September, mid-September, uh, Congress must either vote, or they, if they don't vote by the end of the 60-day period, then President Obama is empowered to lift the sanctions on Iran, uh, the United States sanctions on Iran.
0: Great. Thank you very much for that. Uh, now let's delve into the constitutional questions. David, you wrote a powerful piece in the Wall Street Journal recently called The Lawless Underpinnings of the Iran nuclear deal. You said the Iranian nuclear agreement is unconstitutional, violates international law, and features commitments that President Obama could not lawfully make. In particular, you say the fact that it's an executive agreement, not a treaty, raises constitutional questions because while presidents have used executive agreements to arrange less important or temporary matters, significant international obligations have always been established through treaties which require Senate consent by a two thirds majority. Tell us more about that constitutional objection.
1: sure well, let me talk first about the uh why the treaty route would would have been appropriate here. I'm perfectly aware of uh, the fact that presidents going back to uh George Washington have um, engaged in uh, uh, making uh, international arrangements that did not take the form of a treaty, and I think the the framers uh, were perfectly uh, aware of this possibility. But I think it's, it's equally clear that the major international undertakings by the United States were meant to go for a pretty uh, route, which in the Article 2, Section 2, of course, requires the president to obtain two-thirds uh, uh, majority in, in the Senate. Uh, the reason for it, if you look at the founding year materials, uh, twofold. One, of course, is to limit president's power, uh, which the framers have done quite carefully in a number of instances. But equally important, uh, uh, was a goal uh, to ensure that all major uh, international undertakings by the United States enjoyed broad domestic support. The framers certainly cared about you know, opinions of mankind. Uh, they were perfectly aware of the practice in the Articles of Confederation where states in particular uh, violated uh, commitments that were made by uh uh, during that period. And the reason, by the way, it involves the Senate, of course, another reason is that the treaties are uh, like statutes, of the supreme law well, of the land, and as such, have preemptive force uh, vis-a-vis state law. I don't want to get into the debate, which sometimes has waged in academia, whether old treaties, uh, uh, both self-executing and non-self-executing treaties, uh, preempt, um state law and have other legally binding effects. But let's just say that uh, it was important for the states to be able to participate in a meaningful fashion in uh, in this process through their membership in the Senate. And, of course, remember that particularly before the 17th Amendment was adopted, senators were chosen by state legislatures. So I don't think there's any disagreement that this was done both to cabin President's power to give states through their membership in the Senate a voice in the process and to ensure that uh, all... Uh, Uh, major international commitments by the United States enjoyed domestic support. Now, to get back to the difference between subjects that that are fit for executive agreements and subjects that fit for treaties, um, I mean, there have been hundreds and and even thousands of executive agreements over years, but I would say they mostly took form of settlement of claims, um, some you know, minor commercial undertakings involving cooperative work between government departments and agencies on the outside and their counterparts overseas. Um, virtually all major arms control agreements were done as treaties, uh, and I should say there are a number of instances the presidents were unable to get them through from the Senate. The so-called Comprehensive Nuclear Ban Treaty is, is a perfect example of that. Um, and uh, I would say this, I mean, the, the dividing line in some instances is working, but I'll use the same argument, for example, that uh, was used uh, very powerfully in, in in litigating the first challenge to the Constitution of Obamacare. Remember, there was a question whether or not individual insurance purchase mandate is supportable by the Commerce Clause, and uh, folks on the other side were arguing that it was. The argument there was that if you can support that obligation of a Commerce Clause, there's nothing that cannot be supposed by the Commerce Clause, which means, of course, that it's infinitely capacious and violates the notion that Article I, which is say Congress has limited enumerated powers. I would use the same argument here, and I would say that if this type of an undertaking that structures for decades... Because, but there are different obligations that run for 10 years and 15 years and some beyond that. In the street, if you can uh, structure a major uh, uh, undertaking of this nature, and this is an area which has preoccupied at least the last three administrations and numerous congresses, if you can do that by executive agreement, you can do everything by executive agreement. And this, of course, vitiates Article 2, Section 2 Power. So let me stop there because there are other issues we can discuss, or should discuss as to why the President does not have an ability to uh, uh lift all the sanctions as he has promised, which has to do with the parsing of irrelevant states, their language and various Iran sanctions. We can also talk about why it violates international law, but if we can just focus for now on the on the executive agreement versus uh versus the thing. One last thing I would say, it's it's kind of bizarre because uh, the administration, uh, at this point in time, argued that it would be not a binding agreement, it's a kind of an executive agreement, or a non-binding executive agreement for such an animal. Secretary Kerry certainly said that and there's actually language in the agreement itself uh, that appears to suggest that. It's the introduction to Article 1. But I think that anybody who reads the agreement as a whole Cannot seriously conclude that it's not a binding agreement, and very importantly, that is certainly not the view of Iranians. And the irony here is that administration in selling this deal is certainly taking the view, vis-a-vis Congress and the American people, that this is an agreement that binds Iranians. In respect, there it, it cannot be a, a deal where it's a contract or <laughs> or an international agreement. That is unbinding for one side and binding for another. So I'm actually curious what the administration would say, and Congress, I think, would try to pin them down on this issue.
0: Great. Thank you for that. Uh, Julian David made a bunch of important points. First, he said that significant international obligations have always been established through treaties. Uh, and second, he rejected the administration's notion that this is a non binding executive agreement, uh, such as the U.S. China joint ag- announcement on climate change as opposed to legally binding executive agreements like the Algiers Accord. Uh, Do you agree or disagree with both of those important points?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to David's point about the treaty clause and that the treaty clause must have had some purpose. And I agree with him that the purpose is to ensure that there's, um, you know, know, there's wide support in the United States for any... um, for uh, entering into a treaty. And, you know, as we know, it's very hard to enter into a treaty because you have to get um, such a a large percentage of the Senate to give consent. Um, I think, though, that the the administration, there are some ample precedents for um, structuring this agreement uh, not as a treaty because, as David mentioned, there are many, um, in fact, most agreements made by the United States with other countries take the form of executive agreements and not treaties. And most of them are of relatively minor um, significance compared to this agreement. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, but they have been going on for a long time. And I think the difficulty is that the Constitution doesn't really specify exactly when you can make a treaty and when you can make an executive agreement, but that constitutional practice going back to the very beginning showed that uh, even President Washington and you know, the first administrations Made some agreements via the treaty clause, and some agreements uh, via an executive agreement. With it, meaning that he made it without um, Congress, or he made it, uh, you know, maybe with the um, authorization of Congress, um, but sometimes just by himself. And so the line has been a little fuzzy. I think that um, over the years, uh, what's the main innovation has been that Congress has pre-authorized the president to go out and make binding, important executive agreements on almost every subject including um, especially most um, commonly in the trade context. So the North American Free Trade Agreement, the World Trade Organization, Congress, and the, f- the current trade agreements. Congress essentially pre-authorized the president by passing something called Trade Promotion Authority or some similar statute to go out and make an agreement, a binding, wide-ranging international agreement, um, and without having to come back, uh, without going under the treaty clause. So there's a there's a process of doing it. I think David puts his finger on a key point, which is, well, how do you know whether you have to go through the treaty mechanism, and how do you know when you can either use an executive agreement authorized by Congress or an executive agreement that's not required by any sort of authorization at all? I think here is, it's, I think this is the difficulty here is that it's very, very hard to figure out exactly what this agreement is. David calls it an arms control agreement, but it's different from other U.S. arms control agreements because. Um, unlike, uh, you know, the Soviet arm, nuclear arms control agreements, we're not being required to, to promise to give up certain nuclear weapons or to limit the exercise of our sort of arms building, where certain kinds of arms we'll use or something like that. So it's a little different from the kind of arms control agreements that, um, that are typically, when you say arms control, you typically think, well, Will each agree to limit the number of nuclear weapons we build, or, or the number of tanks we will build, or something like that? Although there are certain elements of, on that front, it's Iran that's giving up its, obli- you know, its rights to do this or that. Um, the U.S. would the U.S. is basically promising to do this with sanctions. And here's where the the quirk of the law is: is that um, the president has broad authority under the statutory mechanism that was created by Congress uh, to waive sanctions. Now, maybe not as broadly as as he claims, but it's relatively broad authority. It's clear that he has to meet certain conditions and then he can lift sanctions on Iran and other countries without having to go back to Congress. And that's the nub of the problem here. In a sense the president is saying, well the Congress has sort of preauthorized me to lift sanctions in certain circumstances. So I can therefore promise under certain circumstances to lift sanctions. And I can go to other countries and say, um, I'll lift the sanctions on you <laughs> um if you do certain things. Um and Congress kind of contemplated that when they passed the sanctioned statutes in the first place. They specifically gave the president a certain amount of discretion to waive the sanctions. Every one of these sanctioned statutes has that. And that's where the president is sort of driving his legal sort of truck through. It's like, well, look, essentially Congress authorized me and other presidents to lift the sanctions in certain, if certain conditions are met, and I think that's the situation here. Whether or not I do it through an agreement or a series of promises, it was always contemplated that would be my call, not yours. You gave me that power. And that's essentially his argument. That's his best argument. Now, there is a bit interesting, uh, to avoid sort of the treaty clause, they've gone through the effort of saying this is a non-binding agreement, and I think you know, that does make it a strange situation. The agreement does make a variety of statements that says it's not binding or it's a voluntary agreement. That's the language used in the agreement. And I think there are people who say, well, what's the point of having a voluntary agreement? But, in fact, in diplomatic practice, there are situations where you might make a joint statement, certain kinds of statements which are very powerful and important, but which are not, in fact, (laughs) binding for legal purposes. Um, It may seem strange, but I think the best example of this was probably the joint communique with the United States and... China um, when President Nixon went to China, and not just that really you know they kind of agreed to on certain things and it wasn't really it wasn't binding in a legal sense at least from the point of view of the United States, but it was tremendously important and that was not uh, concluded as it wasn't really the same as an arms control agreement it's not exactly the same as this agreement, but it's it's probably closer to that, the, the Iran situation, than, than sort of the Soviet nuclear arms control agreements. So this agreement is kind of a hybrid between the arms control agreement and the types of agreements the presidents make when they're sort of reconciling with a country like China that we had no relations with and, no, and all sorts of uh, negative relations with, or, or I guess we're going to go forward with Cuba. Uh, so that's why this falls in this gray area here, and I don't think that it's clear that it requires a treaty um, in order to uh, execute this agreement. But again, the key thing I think to me is that the the sanctioned statutes that Congress passed uh, have preauthorized the president in certain cases to list the sanctions, and so to me, therefore, uh, if those conditions are met under the statute, he has the right to do so, whether or not he makes an agreement or a series of agreements with the United States. he's not doing anything else on behalf of the United States that would um, you know he's not going to say i promise also to to not do certain things um, and I think that that I think is within his authority, at least as far as I can tell, um, based on the statute. Now, maybe there's something in the statutes that are, uh, in the sanctioned statutes that are being violated here, but it's I not been the case, at least from what I can tell. Um, so that's sort of my take on, on the constitutionality here. Essentially, Congress has, through statute, pre-authorized something like this, um, of the lifting of the sanctions in some circumstances. And to the extent that Congress has stopped that, what they've done is they've passed this new law, which allows them to, stop them for lifting sanctions, Um, but they have to get past President Obama's veto to essentially take back the authority they gave to the president beforehand.
0: Great. David, your response to those two uh, uh, strong points. Uh, Julian says first that the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act basically uh, changes the constitutional equation because it gives Congress the opportunity to weigh in on the deal. And then he cites other non-binding executive agreements like the U.S.-China joint... uh, announcement on climate change or the initial deals, which the scholars like Jack Goldsmith and Marty Liederman have said, uh, mean that this deal, too, could be a non-binding agreement with incentives for compliance but no obligations enforceable under international law? What's your response to those points?
1: Right. Now, uh, a couple of distinct points. First, as to congressional preauthorization, uh, uh, well, I, I heard Julian make two points. His point is that the extent of all the existing uh, Iran sanctions, including most powerfuls, a uh, statutory vehicle, which is called the Susana Comprehensive Run Sanctions, Accountability, and Divestment Act of 2010. The waiver provisions, and I heard you know, and say that those waiver provisions in some sense pre the president to... Um, to enter into this kind of agreement. Respect, I think, it's the stretch, the waiver provisions, do nothing more by their terms than authorize the president to waive certain sanctions in certain circumstances. I I would not read them as in any way authorize him or augment his authority to uh, avoid the the treaty route. The second point is uh, made as well, this is an, again, I'm perfectly aware of uh, executive practice in this area in fact uh, what I'm using I'm a strong fan of, of, of robust article 2. I my, that professional Korean government uh, was spent working for White House Council's office and, and Department of justice both uh, uh, both of which are certainly uh, the sort of strongest institutional defenders of president's constitutional prerogatives and I'm aware of shall uh, I communicate which was the, the document I think Jolene is referring to but what, look. Look, we're talking here, uh, and I also heard his point about the United States really is not reducing its nuclear forces or or its military forces anyway. Look, we're talking about an agreement that everybody in the world believes embodies major undertakings by United States, quite aside from lifting of sanctions, which we'll get into in a few minutes. And it's not just a matter of um, Iran making commitments about uh, its nuclear-related activities. We have basically legitimated uh, the continuation of this agreement, the continuation of the Iranian nuclear program. I will take administration this word in a particular format. We have given up um, something that the United States has heretofore, under several administrations, maintained, which is that we reserve the right to use military force. Uh, If Iran actually moved forward with its nuclear program, now instead, assuming that Iran does not cheat and complies with its undertakings, that is off the table. We have made, uh, and uh, as as a number of states in the region point out, we have essentially legitimated uh, a lot of things about Iranian activities for years to come. If that is not a major international undertaking by the United States, and the word "major international undertaking" has no significance, so uh, yes, there is a gray zone here. And in fact, I know for a fact at least one uh, arms control agreement, major arms control agreement, uh, one was not done as a treaty. But again, if a president can do something of this magnitude. That involve not just the United States, but all of our, you know, all of five members of the Security Council and claim that this is not a major undertaking, and does not require a treaty route, then, then everything can be done by non-treaty. Now, uh, one, a couple of other points. So I already said that the waiver provisions and the sanctioned statutes do not authorize a president to do anything of the kind. Now the notion that Corcoran Menendez somehow, which was, uh, a, 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 in my view, a mistake. Because uh, that is not how Congress is supposed to deal with those issues. But the notion that it somehow authorized the President to proceed is, is again, in my view, not, not serious for anybody who would who would read this uh, the language. This is only about taking away entirely president's President's of Authority, which does exist now. It's not as substantial as he says. Um, <laughs> I mean, I would be stunned, actually, even if the administration makes the argument that because it would be cheeky that, that corcom and then just pre-authorize them to do this. Um especially since again I fully expect that Congress would disapprove this deal, albeit not by veto-proof margin. So let's think about it for a second. So we have a notion that a deal that Congress disapproves of authorizes the President to conclude the deal. That would be a parsing strange. One other uh, interesting vignette here. Um, I have to think it's a binding agreement, despite the ritualistic disclaimer in in, in one place. And, again, if you look at the way many other clauses there, they're quite written in quite obligatory language. But the administration did more than just sign this agreement. They went and had obtained a Security Council endorsement of this agreement, uh, even ahead of the congressional review. Now, I know that some scholars, including my good friend John Ballinger, argue that uh if you look carefully at the security Council resolution that um it does not establish does not make binding as a matter of um you know, chapter seven authority uh, uh does not make it binding uh, because security council did not use the word decide. For um, to, you to explain to your, to your listeners, uh, the Security Council is operating under Chapter 7 and um, it establishes obligations that are binding in all member states. So even if the original agreement was not binding, if the Security Council uh, indeed, uh, in my view, endorsed it while operating under Chapter 7, that would be binding independently of whatever initial set of obligation was. So I know there is disagreement about this issue, and uh, Mr. Bellinger and others are pointing out that there is a word "decides" in several places uh, in the Security Council resolution, and then there are words like calls upon, and calls upon is, is, is not mandatory. I understand this argument, but with respect, if you look at the language and Now, just read one sentence to the Security Council resolution. It says, endorses JCPOA. That's the buzzword for the agreement. So, from my perspective, to use the word endorse, is tantamount to making it binding within the overall context of this resolution. And the reason I think, uh, it, and it's fundamentally different from a softer language which says just causal plot. And by the way, the reason the word endorsed was used is because it would have been passing strange for Security Council of five permanent members of which have already signed this deal. And I believe it is binding, even at that time. To say, decide that, um, so the word endorse conveys, in my view, the full force of uh, Chapter 7 authority. Uh,
0: thanks so much for that. Uh, Julian, how much turns on whether this is a binding or non-binding agreement? If it is binding, as David suggests, does, does, does that uh, increase the constitutional difficulties? And then looking forward, in a letter to Iran, members of Congress threatened that the next president could easily revoke this agreement. Is that likely?
2: Okay. So, yeah, let me just <laughs> – there's a couple things I, I didn't – um, before I do that, can I just I want to make clear I, I didn't say a couple things that I didn't say I think I maybe misunderstood. So um, I didn't say that um, uh, that the uh, previous sanctioned statutes authorize uh, the president to enter into agreements. What I was saying was that the previous sanctioned statutes authorize the president to lift sanctions, um, and that uh, so just to make that clear. So I think the way my understanding is that. We have a sanctions regime where the president can lift sanctions if he meets certain conditions, but without going back to Congress. That's the power that President Obama has been, uh, is going to or planning to authorize. Um, so what now? What I'm suggesting, though, is that given that he has this power, and we can argue over the scope of his power, he can authorize, a, he can execute that power at any time, and he can also execute it. And it's not even inconceivable for him to say, well or any president say, well, look, I'm going to waive sanctions, but first I want some sort of promise by some other country that they're going to do better or they're not going to do certain things. I just think the whole statutory reasoning for sanctions is based on the idea that the president has the discretion, uh, you know, limited discretion, to lift the sanctions um, subject to some sort of commitment, political commitment um, from the country that he's lifting sanctions on. Um, I also don't just to make that. I don't argue, therefore, that he's being authorized by these other statutes to make an agreement. What I say is that he's been authorized by these other statutes to lift the sanctions, which is all that's really, um, which is the key thing that the United States is doing here. Um, And that is why I think that, now let me get to the question of whether it's a binding agreement. um, I think, I'm not sure uh, how much of it turns on whether it's a binding agreement. I think um, it is a little confusing the way the administration has um, presented this, because obviously they're claiming that this will Agreement will do all sorts of things to limit um, uh, Iran, and so you know, it's sort of, it does seem like it's kind of um, very important that it's a binding agreement, or not, or for them to argue it's a non-binding agreement. Um, I think that the non-binding binding part um, is important in the sense that it will, it, it does measure to the degree whether or not um, you know, it's an agreement that uh, is something that the uh, that may need to go through. Of the treaty process but i guess in my view even if it was a binding agreement i'm not sure that the, the types of things that um, david cited like legitimating iran's nuclear program or um a giving i'm not sure it gives up the right to use military force but um but i don't think that those are necessarily things that um would uh you know would have to be in the treaty i suppose if you, if you did where to ever use military force against iran for lifting its uh, then I suppose that would be something closer to that. But I'm not sure the things he cited were things that necessarily, even if it was binding, would necessarily have to go through the treaty. I guess in my view, the question is, what can the president do on his own with his current uh, constitutional statutory authorities? Can he lift at sanctions? And my answer is, essentially, yes. And if he can do that, then he can make some sort of diplomatic uh, commitment with another country to do the same. And the analogy, just before I finish this point, is not to the recent climate change agreement with China, but actually to President Nixon's agreement to normalize relations with China. Um, he didn't go to Congress for that. He made a variety of commitments which weren't binding, um, but which did legitimate the Chinese government, which at the time was not quite as bad, but probably almost as bad as Iran today. And he made those commitments which legitimized China and essentially de-recognized or delegitimized the government in Taiwan. He did that all in his own authority. And I think it's um, – and then eventually he lifted sanctions. Um, so there are some sort of analogies to that situation, but I think it's closer to what's going on here than um, than the classic arms control agreements. Now, um, on the other, on the flip side of this, so I would say that, um, so I, I think that the United Nations Security Council issue is is the mechanism by which this agreement Iran will be sort of you know monitored, um, and I'm a little doubtful that it will work very well. But it is, I think a mechanism for this agreement to sort of bring in the other countries that are not part of uh, the agreement and sort of get the United Nations mechanisms involved. Um, again, I think it, I'm not sure, I, I also read it to not be binding, but I think that there are certain things that um, Iran might do which will break up the, which could call or authorize the UN Security Council to do something. But I'm not sure that uh, those resolutions um, are would would sort of, completely incorporate the JCPOA anyways. But for U.S. constitutional purposes, I'll just say this. I think the flip side of having a non-binding agreement which did not go through the Senate is you have an agreement that's, that any president can revoke. Um, a future president, I believe, has the constitutional authority to revoke it. Uh, the future president, I believe, under the statutes, may even have the authority to reimpose the sanctions. And if he has the power to reimpose the sanctions, he certainly has the power to therefore um, you know, do essentially undermine the whole underpinnings of this agreement. And I think the crucial thing about the Non-Education Security Council language is therefore, if it's non-binding, um, then it's a little easier for the, the future president to say, well look, this is, <laughs> I'm just going to um, change my policy here. I'm not violating any international commitment or international obligation. So I think that's the crucial thing. So the, 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 maybe the advantage for the administration is say, well this is non-binding and it's, I don't have to go to the Congress to get a treaty. The, the cost for the administration is that I think it does leave it open to any future president to revoke it, or, frankly, Congress. But certainly any future president could revoke it, in my view, constitutionally, without having to go back to Congress, without violating international law
0: either. Wonderful. All right, gentlemen, it is time for closing arguments. David, I'd like you to take us through what is likely to happen in the future. Will Congress reject the deal? How will the president respond? Will the courts strike it down? And will a future Congress revoke it?
1: Sure. Um, Well, very briefly, um, this is not to rehash the debate about whether it's magic undertaking or not. Uh, I would make a bet with Julian that if the next president, assuming he's a Republican, uh, repudiates this agreement, which I think would be a good thing as a matter of foreign policy, the entire world would portray the United States as a lawbreaker. And believe me that every... You know, uh, every Department of Justice, every foreign office, including that of Britain and France and Germany, would argue that we, A, violated a uh, binding international commitment, and we violated the Security Council resolution propagated in the Chapter 7. So, wanted to get this, <laughs> get this out of the way. So this administration has succeeded, in fact, in, in mousetrapping its successors in, in a sense of uh, getting out of this agreement would entail tremendous costs and would give Iran a high moral and legal ground, which is most unfortunate, which, again, underscores why it should have been done as a treaty. Now, as far as what would happen, I expect Congress will uh, vote to disapprove this, but not by veto-proof margin. The president would veto it. The President would lift uh, all sanctions that he promised to lift. I think it exceeds the scope of his way of authority, particularly because a number of sanctions were imposed, not because of Iran's nuclear program but because of Iranian uh, role as a sponsor of international terrorism uh its money laundering activities and its ballistic missile program and I don't think that <laughs> I don't think even the most enthusiastic supporters of a deal would argue that I Iran's ballistic missile program. Uh, or terrorism related activities and money laundering activities are in any way cabin diminished uh by this by this deal, so he would in my view, quite aside from the issue of a treaty versus an executive agreement, would act unlawfully in lifting no sanctions now um I don't think that anybody would have standing to challenge it as such. I'm a big fan of legislative standing, as, as as some of your listeners may know, but I think that since what's been invaded here is the Senate's power, uh, it would take the Senate to litigate this, and I don't think it would happen, in part because uh, it would require institutional authorization, just like happened of a House lawsuit against President Obama for rewriting some provisions of Obamacare. I, I don't think it's going to happen. So there would be no judicial examination of this arrangement except for one thing, uh, which is one point I suggest in my piece. I think a number of states uh, would, in addition to the ones that have done it already, will pass uh, new sanctions at the state level. I think they would be able to do that despite some case law. There are a couple of cases, including the particular Crosby and Gary Mandy, that talk about the preemptive effect of existing statutes in Crosby and the impact of a binding executive agreement in Gary Mandy. preempting states' ability to otherwise exercise their police power. What's remarkably different here is that there's a provision in CISADA, which I mentioned earlier in Title II, that specifically authorizes states to enact certain kinds of sanctions. So far from being preemptive, um, the existing legislation actually blesses the state's activities in this regard. So the president would have to argue that, and which, again, it would be interesting to see what position he would take, that this non-binding agreement somehow displaces, uh, vitiates, or the fact that he decides to waive some sanctions, vitiates the explicit congressional authorization to the states to enact their own sanctions, pays a very weak argument. So let me finish by saying that the only way it would be litigated if enough states uh, enact their own sanctions and the Iranians get officially upset and by. About this, and by the way, the agreement says that um Iran, if it sanctions are reimposed the new sanctions are imposed, Iran can walk away from all of its nuclear obligations, so this is briefly my my final point. so enough states do that Iran get sufficiently upset threatened to walk away from a deal, the administration would have to bring a lawsuit against those states, and in that case um there's at least a good possibility that uh, an Article free court will sit in judgment on uh, a number of issues, in particular the impact of a president waiver of sanctions to what extent it displaces uh, the statutory authorization and society of states to uh, enact sanctions of their own. Now, it's possible that uh, uh, the court may decide its political question doctrine and, and duck it, but in this case, the state-level sanctions would, would, remain, uh, would remain enforced.
0: Thank you very much for that uh, closing statement. Uh, Julian, last word to you. Uh, What do you think is likely to happen uh, first in Congress? How will the president respond? Might this be challenged in court? Might a court strike it down as unconstitutional? And what are future Congresses likely to do?
2: Yeah, so um, again, I think my general view of this is that the president has a lot of authority under Article 2 of the Constitution and the statutes I mentioned uh, to to promise what he's done so far. Um, And and so, just to, and so I think that um, what's likely to happen is we'll follow the statute of Congress passed. Um, I think David's right; they'll, though um, he'll veto it, and he'll say, okay, I'm, "I'm lifting the sanctions." I'll just note that, and I, th- and I and again, I was like, I don't actually myself think this is a good idea. I hope they're able to override it. <laughs> I don't think it's a great agreement, but I do think that constitutionally, he's within his authority uh, to do what he's uh, doing, at least as far as I can tell. Um, and I think that it's, uh, the, but I do uh, stick to my current position that the future president can withdraw um, without having to go back to Congress. And I agree that there will be a lot of people who flip sides, like people who right now are supporting the president um, on his Article II powers will suddenly say, "Oh, you know, the president needs to go back to Congress." And international players might say, "Oh, you're violating international agreements." But I think that constitutionally, I think it's pretty clear. Most people would have to be, given the open statements the administration has, has made, this is a non-binding agreement that revoking this agreement um, by a future president is completely constitutional without having to go back to Congress. Um, and it doesn't violate um, any international obligation. Um, and I think that there's a very uh, strong argument that's the case, but I think that's, that's the, the cost, as I said before, of, of making the agreement in this way. What you, get, what you get is the agreement without having to get a treaty. What you don't get is something that binds a future president um, in any way, um, at least in, uh, in any sort of legal way. And it's always expensive and costly to pull out of agreement uh, to change the policies. If, uh, if President Carter had decided to reverse President Nixon's policy in China, it would have been very difficult and costly. Um, but he uh, could have done it. I don't think people have said it was unconstitutional. Um, so I think that's probably will we'll end up... I do agree with David on the state's point. I think the states have a pretty strong argument that they're authorized to... Uh, if they want to impose sanctions, they can, and that they're not preempted. I do agree that this is the most likely area... We'll see any litigation, although I think the court will pro- the courts there will probably limit themselves to focusing on, um the uh, preemption question and not get to the merits of whether the agreement, the whole structure itself is constitutional. But even if they did, my bet is that they'd come to the conclusion that it is constitutional, um, and only the question will be whether the states can intervene. I think it's a close question, uh, because, uh, the previous Supreme Court cases have allowed, including Garamendi, a non-binding, not, not exactly binding executive agreement to preempt state, um, law, but I don't think it's clear that the Iran statutes are the same. So that will be, I think, the most likely area where we'll see some litigation. And it's one reason why I think this agreement will continue to be sort of on sort of teeter hooks as it goes forward, even if President Obama vetoes it and it goes forward. I think it's quite likely the states will, some states will act, given the level of opposition in the country. I think that's fine. And I think um, my, my take is that the states are probably allowed to act. Um, and then I think we can see Iran at that point getting angry and thinking about pulling out. Um, and so that, you know, this, there's so many ways this agreement could fall apart. I think that's probably one possible way for it to fall apart in the future. So there's no reason to think that um, this agreement won't so last the full 10 years. And again, the final point, I'd say say that the crucial part is that I think a future president uh, could withdraw. And so it really depends politically on whether the country's opposition to the Iran agreement extends to electing a president who's opposed to the Iran agreement and who wants to pull it out. I think that's the most likely way we'll resolve the question rather than through the courts.
0: Thank you so much, David Rifkin and Julian Ku, for an illuminating discussion of this hotly contested, complex and deeply important question of the president's power to pass the Iran agreement. Uh, Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. I know you've been bombarded recently by my reading ads for mattresses and razors. Well, the truth is that despite our mandate from Congress, which you know I love to recite, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and we rely entirely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education. So please consider becoming a member of the National Constitution Center to support nonpartisan debate and in education, including this great We the People podcast series. To become a member and learn more about thrilling member benefits, visit constitutioncenter.org membership. That's constitutioncenter.org dot org slash membership.